On the morning of September 11, 2001, President George W. Bush was in Sarasota, Florida. He'd been visiting Emma E. Booker Elementary School to talk about education reform. But as Bush exited his car shortly after 8.45 a.m., his senior advisor, Carl Rove, approached him with serious news. A plane had just crashed into the North Tower of the World Trade Center. Bush interpreted this as an accident caused by a wayward pilot. It was tragic, but not a matter demanding immediate action, so the president proceeded with his day as scheduled. Around 9 a.m., Bush sat with a class of second-grade students as they read aloud a book called The Pet Goat. The president was all smiles until five minutes later, when his chief of staff swiftly approached and leaned into his ear. He uttered in a low whisper, A second plane hit the second tower. America is under attack. All eyes turned to Bush. He blinked and then pursed his lips, but he didn't move. In fact, Bush sat silent for more than four minutes. Later, Bush would claim that he didn't take action in an effort not to panic the kids. But some wondered if George W. Bush's inaction was more than just shock or cluelessness. They suspect that he didn't react because he knew it was going to happen. Welcome to Conspiracy Theories, a Spotify original from Parcast. Every Monday and Wednesday, we dig into the complicated stories behind the world's most controversial events and search for the truth. I'm Carter Roy. And I'm Molly Brandenburg. And neither of us are conspiracy theorists. But we are open-minded, skeptical, and curious. Don't get us wrong. Sometimes the official version is the truth. But sometimes it's not. You can find episodes of Conspiracy Theories and all other Spotify originals from Parcast for free on Spotify. This is the fifth part of our six-episode special on the September 11th attacks. In the last episode, we dug into the shady business ties between the Bushes, the Bin Ladens, and the Saudi government. Ties that led many to believe Bush knew more about the attacks than he let on. In today's episode, we'll explore how much the U.S. government actually knew about the 9-11 attacks before they happened, especially since many believe that President George W. Bush was angling for war since his first day in office. We have all that and more coming up. Stay with us. This episode is brought to you by BetterHelp. Bottling everything up can be really bad for you in the long run and have some terrible consequences. And this isn't a conspiracy theory. The more you let things build up, the more of a toll it can take on your mental health. I know for me, in dealing with some traumatic events in my life, I had the tendency to think, well, they've already happened. I'm okay. Other people have it worse. It doesn't matter much. And through therapy, was really able to understand how those events impacted me and changed how I'd started to see the world in ways that weren't great and were sometimes making my life worse. So therapy or dealing with any traumatic events you've had might really help you in terms of how you can live in the present moment now. 
So if you want to give therapy a try, check out BetterHelp. It's entirely online, convenient, and flexible. It's also really easy to get started. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist. Get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Visit BetterHelp.com conspiracy today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P, dot com slash conspiracy. If you're interested in crazy stories from the wild world of organized crime, scams, gangs, cartels, mafias, drug dealers, and everything fun like that, have we got a podcast for you. The Underworld Podcast is hosted by two conflict journalists, Danny Gold and Sean Williams, who have reported on all sorts of dangerous people in dangerous places. Every week, they bring you a new episode on international organized crime from a new corner of the globe. You can find the Underworld podcast on Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts. There's a new class of blockbuster drugs. Drugs like Ozempic. They're changing bodies. And all of a sudden, just the weight starts falling off. Fortunes. It just got too expensive. They're just bank breakers. And industries. There was a lot of excitement. There was a lot of skepticism. The impact of these drugs from business to health is just beginning. From the journal, Trillion Dollar Shot. Find it in the journal feed wherever you get your podcasts. Immediately after the attacks on September 11, 2001, the American people wanted to know who was responsible. And the answer was al-Qaeda leader Osama bin Laden. The FBI quickly named bin Laden as the top target on its most wanted terrorists list. But this answer opened up even more questions. The U.S. government knew bin Laden was a threat for years before 9-11, Did the Bush administration know about the planned attack? And if they did, why wasn't anything done to stop it? And perhaps most to the point, what does a rock have to do with anything? Last week, we discussed the Bush family's business ties to the Bin Ladens and Saudi Arabia. But if we really want to understand how 9-11 happened, we have to look at the Bushes' involvement with a man who had absolutely nothing to do with the attacks, Saddam Hussein. And that involvement began years before September 11, 2001. The first President Bush, George H.W., served as Ronald Reagan's vice president for eight years before he was elected president himself in 1988. One of his first priorities was to gain an ally on the other side of the world, Saddam Hussein. His advisors warned him against sending aid to the Iraqi dictator, but Bush reportedly wanted to, quote, bring Saddam into the family of nations. According to journalist Craig Unger, his reasoning was primarily based on America's continued support of Saudi Arabia and the desire to protect Iraq's oil reserves. Bush wanted Iraq on the United States' side, despite reports of Saddam's human rights violations, military growth, and rumored chemical weapons use. A year later, in August of 1990, Bush's funding unintentionally helped Saddam lead an invasion into Kuwait. U.S. officials were worried, partially for Kuwait, 
but they were more concerned that Hussein's next target might be Saudi Arabia. According to the CIA's Persian Gulf Task Force deputy chief, if the Iraqi leader invaded Saudi Arabia, he would overrun the oil-rich eastern province in a matter of hours. As we talked about in part three, Osama bin Laden offered to help Saudi Arabia build an army, but he was turned down. Instead, the nation partnered with the U.S. And in January of 1991, Operation Desert Storm brought the U.S. into the Gulf War. The men in charge of the combat were two now-familiar names, Joint Chiefs of Staff Chairman Colin Powell and Secretary of Defense Dick Cheney. The mission was focused on rescuing Kuwait from Saddam's army and protecting Saudi Arabia. The agenda didn't include liberating Iraq and killing Saddam, because they decided the financial and human cost of such a war would be too much. So, once Saddam withdrew his forces from Kuwait a month later, the U.S. ceased fire. The war was considered a success. After it ended, George H.W. had close to a 90% approval rating. He seemed like a shoe-in to win re-election. But while Bush won the war abroad, the U.S. economy had plunged into a recession that was a decade in the making. Unemployment rose to 7.2%, and due to the Gulf War, oil prices had briefly skyrocketed from $17 a barrel to $40. The government's budget deficit grew as well, and suddenly, Bush needed to break his cardinal campaign promise. He raised taxes. By 1992, voters resented him for his broken pledge, and Bush lost his bid for re-election. Instead, a Democrat emerged victorious, Arkansas Governor Bill Clinton. Temporarily, America was dazzled by the Clinton era. Press coverage about his folksy charm, love for McDonald's, and ability to play the saxophone filled his first term. But in his second term, foreign policy took center stage once again. Osama bin Laden still resented Saudi Arabia for choosing to employ American troops during the Gulf War. He felt that U.S. soldiers had no business stepping foot in the home nation of two of Islam's holiest cities, Mecca and Medina. So on August 7, 1998, bin Laden enacted his revenge. Two truck bombs exploded at U.S. embassies in Tanzania and Kenya, leaving 224 people dead and more than 4,500 wounded. Soon, al-Qaeda took responsibility and bin Laden became an internationally wanted man. Thirteen days later, Clinton authorized missile strikes against suspected terrorist hideouts in Afghanistan and Sudan. But bin Laden wasn't at any of these locations, and wherever he was, he was planning his revenge. On December 4, 1998, Clinton received an alarming classified report from the CIA in the presidential daily briefing. The subject read, Bin Laden preparing to hijack U.S. aircraft and other attacks. The document detailed how Al-Qaeda had been working with U.S.-based operatives intending to hijack an airplane. The threat wasn't imminent, but they were, quote, moving closer to an attack somewhere in the United States. 
Unfortunately, this intelligence arrived as the CIA and the FBI were butting heads constantly in the hunt for bin Laden. The agencies were reluctant to share information, causing many communication breakdowns. It reached a fever pitch in February of 1999. CIA officer Michael Scheuer, who was the head of the agency's bin Laden issue station, received word that bin Laden was in a camp near Kandahar, Afghanistan. Scheuer rushed to tell his boss, CIA director George Tenet. And the response wasn't at all what Scheuer expected. Up next, the U.S. government reveals its true priorities. The most urgent mysteries in the world are missing persons cases. The stakes are too high not to pursue every plausible possibility. And some implausible ones, too. I'm Sarah Turney host of the new podcast, Disappearances. In 2020, after spending years searching for the truth, I used social media to help bring justice to my sister Alyssa's nearly two decades long disappearance. Now, every Thursday on Spotify, I'm exploring the many reasons people disappear and the impact their absences can have on those left behind. From child abductions and mystifying murders, to those who took drastic measures to start over. Each episode of Disappearances journeys through a different high-profile missing persons case, ripped from the headlines and ripe for explanation. Because no one just vanishes into thin air. The answers are out there, waiting to be found. Follow the Spotify original from Parcast Disappearances. Hear a new episode every Thursday, free and only on Spotify. Now, back to the story. In February of 1999, CIA officer Michael Scheuer got a tip that Osama bin Laden was staying in a camp just south of Kandahar, Afghanistan. He alerted CIA director George Tenet, and together they met with Richard A. Clark, the White House's national coordinator for counterterrorism. Scheuer expected the men to take swift action. But they didn't. Tenet and Clark reasoned that they couldn't prove without a doubt that bin Laden was in the Kandahar camp. They were also concerned about the collateral damage. Potentially hundreds of innocent people might be killed in the crossfire. But a few of those innocent bystanders were particularly crucial. An official aircraft from the United Arab Emirates was spotted at the campsite. Clark had recently helped negotiate the sale of an $8 billion fighter airplane to the UAE, and he may have feared that if any UAE officials were hurt or killed in the raid, it would jeopardize the deal. So they refused to take action. Scheuer couldn't understand why the CIA wouldn't take his intel seriously. Bin Laden was right where they wanted him. He even brought the information to the FBI, hoping to be heard. But he wasn't. In fact, the unsolicited advice only increased the tension between the two agencies. And when Tennant found out, it was the last straw. By May, Scheuer was removed from his role at the bin Laden issue station. Word reportedly spread across the agency that Scheuer's obsession with bin Laden had spiraled out of control, causing him to have a breakdown. 
At the time, no one had understood the gravity of ignoring Scheuer's tip, so his colleagues didn't necessarily see his dismissal as an injustice. But in retrospect, the CIA's lack of response wasn't just embarrassing, it was fatal. Years later, Scheuer told C-SPAN that President Bill Clinton had about 10 opportunities to kill bin Laden, yet didn't. Clinton, though, defended his decisions in the Kandahar incident. In an audio recording obtained by Sky News Australia in 2014, he said, quote, I could have killed bin Laden, but I would have to destroy Kandahar and kill 300 innocent women and children, and then I would have been no better than him. Clinton wouldn't be in the White House when bin Laden's threat materialized. After his second term, his vice president, Al Gore, was a shoe-in for the Democratic ticket in 2000. Meanwhile, the Republican nominee was none other than George H.W. Bush's son, Texas Governor George W. Bush. In the summer of 2000, Bush selected Dick Cheney as his running mate. Of course, Cheney was the elder Bush's former Secretary of Defense. He had expert knowledge of the Middle East, as well as useful military and diplomatic contacts. Cheney did plenty of business in the Middle East. After the Gulf War, he left politics to become the CEO of an oil company named Halliburton. Under his leadership, it made a staggering $1.5 billion from government contracts. The oil industry immediately backed the Bush-Cheney ticket. Companies like ExxonMobil and Chevron gave $26 million to the Bush-Cheney campaign and other Republican candidates. If Bush and Cheney got to the White House, they were sure to act in the industry's favor. But that was a big if. The election between Bush and Gore was extremely heated. Gore won the popular vote, but Bush ultimately won Florida's electoral votes and secured the victory. After the tense election, a deep divide in the U.S. became apparent. Either you were with Bush or you weren't. Amid protests of those who weren't, George W. Bush was inaugurated as the 43rd president on January 20, 2001. He filled his cabinet with some familiar faces from his father's presidency. For Secretary of State, he chose Colin Powell, who served as Joint Chiefs of Staff Chairman under George H.W. Bush. As for Secretary of Defense, he picked Donald Rumsfeld, who had advised President Ford during the final days of the Vietnam War. It's noteworthy that Bush stacked his cabinet with battle-tested officials during a time of peace. There were seemingly no wars on the horizon. Unless there was a plan Bush hadn't yet disclosed. One cabinet member believed this was the case. Then-Treasury Secretary Paul O'Neill later said that Bush was amping up for combat since his first days in office. He told CBS News, quote, from the very beginning, there was a conviction that Saddam Hussein was a bad person and that he needed to go. Relations between the U.S. and Iraq still weren't friendly, and George H.W. Bush and Cheney likely regretted their decision to leave Saddam alone. Right after the elder Bush left office in 1993, Saddam allegedly tried to assassinate him with a car bomb during a trip to Kuwait. 
It isn't clear if Bush simply intended to seek revenge for his father, or if there was a different motivation for his crusade against Saddam, perhaps an interest that both the Bush family and Cheney shared, oil. Journalist Ron Suskind uncovered a secret memo called Foreign Suitors for Iraqi Oilfield Contracts, dated March 5th, 2001. The document marked potentially oil-rich areas in Iraq and detailed who wanted to buy the fields. The list included oil companies from all over the world, including Canada, China, and Russia. But around this time, Iraq's oil industry was nationalized, meaning they didn't do business with other countries. Evidently, Bush and Cheney wanted this to change. In short, Iraq had trillions of dollars worth of oil, but U.S. companies couldn't access it until Saddam was gone. Perhaps it's no coincidence that Bush started to look for a reason, any reason, to assault his father's old rival. The problem was, roughly half the American population hated George W. Bush. Since he lost the popular vote, many refused to accept him as president. During his first days in office, his approval rating hovered just above 50%. It was doubtful he'd get support for an Iraq attack from the public, let alone the legislature. Unless something huge happened that shook up the country, like an attack on American soil, a new generation's Pearl Harbor. Even to many conspiracy theorists, it's unthinkable that Bush would have planned a terrorist attack, killing thousands of civilians just to prompt a war. But maybe he didn't have to plan an attack because one was already looming. Throughout 2001, the CIA warned the Bush administration that Osama bin Laden was a growing threat to the U.S. Bush and his administration seemingly did nothing. The final warning came on August 6, 2001. Bush was vacationing at his beloved ranch in Crawford, Texas, a CIA officer flew there to give Bush's daily briefing in person. This edition had a distressing title, Bin Laden Determined to Strike in U.S. The report detailed how Bin Laden's associates were showing suspicious activity, including surveilling New York federal buildings in preparation for hijacking. Bush read over the document and reportedly told the CIA briefer, All right. You covered your ass now. Then he went fishing. Coming up, George W. Bush turns a hunt for Osama bin Laden into a war with Saddam Hussein. Now back to the story. On August 6, 2001, President George W. Bush received a CIA briefing titled, Bin Laden Determined to Strike in U.S. But rather than take action, Bush apparently resumed his vacation at his Texas ranch. The president didn't seem concerned about such a grave document, even though his administration seemed to know the threat was serious. On September 11th, around 8.15 a.m., Secretary of Defense Donald Rumsfeld made a startling prediction at a breakfast with members of Congress. He said, quote, 
Sometime in the coming period, an event somewhere in the world will be sufficiently shocking that it will remind the American people and their representatives in Washington how important it is for us to have a strong national defense. A half hour later, his prediction came true. Bush found out about the attacks on the Twin Towers while visiting an elementary school in Florida. A now infamous video captured him hearing the news and silently going on with his visit as if nothing was amiss. At first, Bush was criticized for his inaction, but that evening he became the leader people needed him to be. He addressed the country, vowing retribution against the culprits. He didn't mention Osama bin Laden by name, but he did declare that, quote, we stand together to win the war against terrorism. Nine days later, Bush clarified who that war would be against. During a joint session of Congress, he announced that bin Laden was just the beginning. Our war on terror begins with al-Qaeda, but it does not end there. It will not end until every terrorist group of global reach has been found, stopped, and defeated. In the wake of such a devastating tragedy, Americans were in full support. On September 21st, a poll revealed that Bush had a 90% approval rating, the highest rating for a president in recorded history by one percentage point. The support was bipartisan too. Two weeks after the attacks, about nine in 10 Democrats and independents supported the president. Suddenly, George W. Bush was the most popular president of all time, and he seemingly had carte blanche to do whatever he wanted. On October 26th, a mere six weeks after 9-11, Bush signed the bipartisan-approved Patriot Act. Based on proposals by Attorney General John Ashcroft, this new piece of legislation, which was subject to little debate in Congress, increased the power of law enforcement in ways that had never been seen before in the U.S. The Patriot Act virtually abolished the right to privacy in the name of catching terrorists. Everyday citizens could be flagged for surveillance just for searching for certain topics on the internet or making a suspicious bank transaction. Theoretically, you could be marked for secret surveillance if you innocently purchased a book about Islam or Marxism. All law enforcement would have to claim was that the search was in some way related to a continuing investigation into terrorism or foreign intelligence. While some in Congress may have voted for the Patriot Act with the best of intentions, it was a rushed bill that essentially gave the government the freedom to target anyone. Some organizations like the ACLU have argued that it violates the First and Fourth Amendments. The Patriot Act wasn't the only measure the government took to prevent future terrorist attacks on U.S. soil. In that same September 20th speech to Congress, Bush announced by executive order that he was creating the Office of Homeland Security. But this wasn't the Department of Homeland Security that we know today. In fact, many, like Senator Bob Graham, quickly realized that the office wouldn't have any real powers of its own. Its director would essentially be a glorified advisor to Bush. In opposition, 
Graham and Senator Joe Lieberman made their own separate proposals for a more independent structure, but Bush refused them. Many have since theorized that Bush wanted to keep all the power to himself. If that was the case, it appears he got what he wanted. The Department of Homeland Security was officially created in November 2002. With the U.S. seemingly more secure at home, Bush demanded that Afghanistan's government, the Taliban, hand over all of al-Qaeda's leaders. But counterterrorism advisor Richard A. Clark found the approach strikingly ineffectual. It was widely known that the Taliban cooperated with al-Qaeda. They weren't just going to hand over bin Laden. Clark thought the U.S. needed to strike at both al-Qaeda and the Taliban as quickly as possible. Bush did, in fact, begin plans for a covert war in Afghanistan as early as September 17th. However, it wasn't until October 7th that the United States began bombing al-Qaeda camps and Taliban military facilities. And it took until November 25th for U.S. Marines to finally step foot inside Afghanistan. By the time they took control of known Taliban and al-Qaeda locations, they found them deserted not a trace left behind. When U.S. forces finally did locate bin Laden in December, the results were disappointing. Somehow, after a multi-day siege in the White Mountains of eastern Afghanistan, bin Laden managed to escape alive. Eventually, the mounting pressure led the Bush administration to take a more aggressive approach with Afghanistan. In March 2002, more troops were sent to scour the mountains each time, they came up short of victory. All the while, people back home noticed something odd. The Bush administration was pivoting the September 11th conversation away from Afghanistan. Now, they claimed that Iraq was also a threat. In Bush's first State of the Union address on January 29th, 2002, he accused Iraq of being hostile supporting terrorism, and developing nuclear weapons. The administration publicly hinted that Iraq had a connection to the 9-11 attacks, and Iraq's supposed nuclear warheads could prompt more terrorism. The potential threat of Saddam Hussein's Weapons of Mass Destruction, or WMDs, soon drowned out concerns about Afghanistan and bin Laden. There was no concrete evidence that Iraq actually had WMDs, but the administration wasn't interested in waiting for proof. In September of 2002, National Security Advisor Condoleezza Rice told CNN, quote, We don't want the smoking gun to be a mushroom cloud. Bush officials didn't just talk publicly about the threat of nuclear war. They nearly went out of the way to discuss it. By October 2002, the Bush administration had made numerous public statements about the threat of Iraq. The publicity campaign was effective. Most Americans barely noticed the pivot from fighting Afghanistan to Iraq. Throughout 2002, Gallup polls revealed that nearly 60% of citizens supported an Iraq invasion. However, skepticism was building behind the scenes. In September of 2002, Senator Graham requested a national intelligence estimate, a multi-agency consensus of intelligence regarding Iraq. But when Graham asked for it, 
CIA Director George Tenet gave him a blank stare. The document didn't exist. At that moment, Graham realized the Bush administration was determined to go to war with Iraq, whatever it took. In his estimate, the NIE didn't exist because if anyone actually examined the facts, they'd realized that the decision to invade Iraq was inherently flawed. Nearly a month later, Tenet and the CIA finally produced an NIE making the case that invading Iraq could prevent a nuclear war. However, Graham noticed the document had no proof that Iraq had any contact with Al-Qaeda. Instead, it focused on the alleged WMDs and listed few to no drawbacks to the war, a huge red flag for the senator. But there was nothing he could do. Bush was determined to conquer Iraq and kill Saddam Hussein, not bin Laden. That was made clear in Secretary of State Colin Powell's stern presentation to the United States Security Council in February of 2003. Powell said, There can be no doubt that Saddam Hussein has biological weapons and the capability to rapidly produce more, many more. And he has the ability to dispense these lethal poisons and diseases in ways that can cause massive death and destruction. Powell spoke in absolutes and declared that everything he relayed was backed up by reliable sources without actually providing those sources. The UN opposed the invasion, but the American people were sold on Powell's evidence. According to a March 2003 Gallup poll, 72% of citizens supported a war against Iraq. With this groundswell of support, Bush took the U.S. into a war with a country that had nothing to do with 9-11. The hunt for Osama bin Laden inexplicably transformed into the hunt for Saddam Hussein. On March 19, 2003, U.S. soldiers invaded Iraq with a shock and awe campaign intended to kill Saddam at his Baghdad presidential compound. Three weeks later, the U.S. took control of Baghdad. Bush celebrated the victory on May 1st, delivering a speech on a naval aircraft carrier adorned with a banner that read, Mission Accomplished. My fellow Americans, major combat operations in Iraq have ended. In the Battle of Iraq, the United States and our allies have prevailed. And now our coalition is engaged in securing and reconstructing that country. To anyone who was paying attention, the declaration of victory didn't make any sense. Saddam, the main target, was still alive, and no WMDs were disarmed. In fact, no WMDs were ever found at all. And that contributed to the public's disillusionment with the war. It was becoming clear that the link between 9-11 and Saddam Hussein wasn't as strong as the Bush administration claimed. Americans felt like they had been conned. A February 2004 CBS poll revealed that 59% of citizens thought the administration had, quote, exaggerated the intelligence it received about weapons of mass destruction to build support for the war. All at once, people began to ask why the U.S. was chasing Saddam Hussein and not bin Laden. Protests erupted in the streets. 
The media pointed out the Bush administration's errors in judgment and potential connections to bin Laden. Politicians claimed that Bush had always planned on invading Iraq. So when U.S. forces eventually captured Saddam Hussein in December of 2003, it felt like a hollow victory. Nonetheless, the Iraqi dictator was eventually convicted and executed by hanging in 2006. After his death, a new Iraqi government formed. In 2008, companies like Shell, ExxonMobil, and BP immediately began securing contracts to service Iraq's oil fields. Bush and Cheney's oil industry colleagues had won the victory they'd wanted from the beginning. But the Iraq occupation had become increasingly difficult to end. The war continued on for several more years, outlasting Bush's two terms in the White House. He left office in 2009, leaving President Barack Obama to inherit an economic recession, the Iraq War, and the bin Laden hunt. Finally, in August of 2010, the CIA tracked down bin Laden's home, a three-story fortified compound in Abbottabad, Pakistan. The Al-Qaeda leader hadn't been hiding in the mountains, as everyone believed. He was living in a relatively major city. As months passed, the CIA grew more confident that the home really belonged to bin Laden. Though there were several plans of attack, including airstrikes, Obama opted for a risky raid because he wanted proof that bin Laden was dead. On the night of May 1st, 2011, Navy SEALs infiltrated bin Laden's compound. When they finally found him in a bedroom, a firefight commenced. The SEALs shot bin Laden above his left eye and in his chest. U.S. forces identified the man as the world's most notorious terrorist and later confirmed the identification with a DNA test. Bin Laden's body had to be disposed of quickly, heeding the Islamic law that a body must be buried within 24 hours of passing. No country was willing to take custody of bin Laden's corpse, so aboard the USS Carl Vinson, the body was placed on a plank and slid into the Arabian Sea. After nearly 10 years of searching for bin Laden, many people felt that justice had finally been served. But 9-11 has never been just about Osama bin Laden or even George W. Bush. Even with those two men out of the picture, nations around the world continue to feel the aftershocks of 9-11. The Afghan people, in particular, have faced the devastating economic and social consequences of 40 years of continuous war, punctuated by America's 2001 invasion, and the Taliban's takeover in August of 2021. And September 11th changed everything for the United States as well. Next time, we'll consider what that means in light of what we know now. Thanks for tuning in to Conspiracy Theories. We'll be back next time with the final episode of our 9-11 special. You can find all episodes of Conspiracy Theories and all other Spotify originals from ParCast for free on Spotify. Until then, remember, the truth isn't always the best story. And the official story isn't always the truth. 
Conspiracy Theories is a Spotify original from Parcast. Executive producers include Max and Ron Cutler. Sound design by Russell Nash, with production assistance by Ron Shapiro, Trent Williamson, Carly Madden, and Bruce Katovich. This episode of Conspiracy Theories was written by Mallory Cara, with writing assistance by Mackenzie Moore and Kate Gallagher. Fact-checking by Bennett Logan, and research by Bradley Klein. Conspiracy Theories stars Molly Brandenburg and Carter Roy. I'm Sarah Turney, host of the new Spotify original from Parcast, Disappearances. Every Thursday, join me for an exploration into history's most gripping missing persons cases. Following timelines, analyzing clues, and piecing together as many answers as possible to find the truth. From prison breaks and child abductions to second chances and even murder. We'll journey through the many reasons people disappear. Follow my new podcast, Disappearances, free and only on Spotify. Spotify.